Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and we are so pleased to have you on board, Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with our co-host, Carol Zernio, many of you know her as a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging. She serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation and handles community affairs for WellMed, and you can hear her and see her around this community dealing with issues as they affect seniors and their families. Hi. Good afternoon. It's good to see you. Thank you very much. We've got a very interesting guest coming up in just a couple of moments, Brenda Vadia, who you heard speak in Corpus Christi. I did, you know, and she um, she has gained much wisdom over the years. So, you know, she started out was a caregiver back in the 90s when, you know, it's tough now. It was tougher then, uh, and she talks a little bit um, uh, about that in her speech. So this is going to be a treat for folks who really want to get some good advice. She is the founder of the Caregiver's Voice, and we'll hear from Brenda Vady in just a couple of moments. But first, uh, as you advance in age, and Carol, you're not there yet, uh, you begin to get unsolicited mailings, in my case, almost weekly, talking about hearing aids, hearing tests, getting your hearing looked at. Uh, And it turns out you've done a little research that hearing loss costs us a lot of money. Well, it's not that it costs us a lot of money. And, you know, for those of us in the aging field, it's um, one of most people think that losing your vision, that's the worst thing that could happen. Going blind is the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to you. Uh, And what they don't realize is that it's actually hearing loss, which is much more common. You know, it's highly pervasive, especially in older adults, um, and people pay a much higher price for that in a bunch of different ways. So the first thing that happens when you lose your hearing is, well, you're you're not understanding conversations, right? It's very easy to become paranoid. Uh, maybe people are deliberately talking softly so that you can't hear them because they're oh. talking about you. Right. You know, um, or it can be that you stop listening because you're not understanding what's going on anyway. You stop listening. You start dropping out of society, um, you know, and it really cuts you off. It you isolate. isolate. You can be isolated in hearing loss in a room full of people because with all of that noise, um, you're not understanding anything that's going on. You might as well be at home, not around anybody, as being frustrated around all of these people talking. You know, I, I, I have um, older relatives that talk about the difficulties in going to a restaurant. Like, that's the worst thing you can do. We go get dinner, and we bring it back, and we eat it in the apartment because going to a restaurant is too noisy, and there's no way to have a conversation. They can't filter out their own conversation. And so, you know, this article, it was Jane Brody who writes so well in the New York Times uh, talking to people um, in the hearing business. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the sooner you get a hearing aid, the easier it is for you to adapt to using it. When we've gone for 15 years without really listening or hearing what's going on, and then you try to get those muscles and those connections and use that hearing aid, and granted, hearing aids are not perfect, but they're better than they used to be. And if you get them sooner rather than later, you're not going to, you won't have missed so much life. You're not going to have that isolation. You're not going to have that paranoia. You know, there's some studies that go back and talk about hearing loss can stop, you know, start in your 50s. Uh, you can be working and have significant hearing loss that actually can cost you your job, which is what you were talking right. about, the financial impact. If you didn't hear your boss say, don't spend more than 15000 and you thought he said 50000 or he thinks, you know, he's tired of you saying, what, what, what? You're just exhausting him with repetition. You know, he's going to look for somebody else, or she. She might look for somebody else. So, you know, hearing loss, I I think a lot of us, we don't have as much sympathy for someone with hearing loss because sometimes it can be annoying if you're the person that's with the person that can't hear. It's, It's absolutely exhausting to try to talk to somebody who 
really can't hear. It's frustrating. Um, and and we don't give them that sympathy that we might get if they were visually impaired. So that's another way that people with hearing loss kind of get the short end of the stick. We don't really empathize with them. Get a hearing aid. What's wrong with you? And a lot of folks, because of vanity, uh, avoid hearing aids. But, boy, have they changed. When I was a kid, my Grandpa Max, my dad's father, had a hearing aid that hooked over his ear. And the actual um, microphone speaker was a box on his chest, a long wire up to his ear, which he... Uh, often turned off, and I can remember my grandma saying, "Max, turn on your hearing aid." That's right. Well, and the, and the, and the buzzing and the right. batteries. But you know, today's hearing aids, it, you know, it's scary because they're really easy you don't to lose. See them. You don't see them; they're so small. They fit right inside your ear, and the did you know the digital hearing aids? You can control them with your app on your phone. So you, too, can be like other people fidgeting with your phone in a conversation. You can get it out, turn it up, turn it down, help locate it. Um, it's a new day. And I would just encourage two things. Number one, if you have hearing loss, don't wait. Get it checked out. Check your vanity at the door and admit you have a hearing problem and that it is negatively affecting your life, whether you know it or not. And I'm talking to the caregivers because a lot of us have hearing loss. Um and if you are someone who doesn't have hearing loss that lives with someone with hearing loss, you know, put, you know, plug up your ears some time. Walk a mile in their moccasins and think about what does that really feel like to not understand what's going on around you. Uh, it, it is very sad. It's very isolating. And it's something that we need to take seriously. And, and if you live with someone, if you've got a spouse or a significant other, uh, ask them if they think you have a hearing problem because they probably know. Oh, and, well, and, and they do a lot. You know, a lot. Of, most of us know when something's not working right. We just don't want to admit it right. to ourselves. Exactly. So encourage them to get that help. Good idea. And uh, there's plenty of help out there. So you want to pursue that uh, as quickly as you can. Next up, well, this is interesting. Alcoholism is that depression? Is alcohol depression? If you're an alcohol dependent person. Well, I love this question. This was in one of the New York Times Q&A boxes, and someone was asking, is alcoholism a form of depression or does it cause depression? So the response back from that, and we talk about this because the baby boomer generation, which includes people who are caregivers and people who are getting care, you know, we have very high rates of depression and very high rates of alcoholism. Uh, We're the children of the 50s and the 60s, so that, you know, drugs and and other things. So alcoholism isn't a form of depression, but depression can make you vulnerable to alcoholism. So you're not feeling happy, the drinking numbs you, um, and and it can work vice versa. So if you're an alcoholic, which is alcohol is a depressant, it makes you depressed, so it can trigger a depression. It's a really bad combination. It really is. And we know that uh, especially males 65 and over have a higher risk and incidence of alcoholism today than ever before. Yeah, and you know, it's it's just it's a it's a spiral, it's a downward spiral mixing alcohol uh, and depression. And if you're depressed, it's going to make cutting off alcohol that much harder because what do you have to live for anyway? You know, what hope do you have anyway? Um, and and so there is help if you struggle from depression or alcoholism, uh, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're a care recipient. It's probably going to be a combination of medication, talk therapy, and some social support. Mm-hmm. No, you're not crazy. No, you're not alone. So um, it's a good question. Not the same thing, but boy, do alcoholism and depression love to live together. While there's no cure for Alzheimer's and no drug as yet that's totally effective in slowing and preventing the onset Uh, There has been some work on dealing with the agitation that comes with Alzheimer's. I was fascinated by this. This, again, the New York Times. So, you know, agitation and aggression, if you have been around someone with Alzheimer's, it's not uncommon. Uh, You know, I remember once a gentleman who had pulled his fist back and he was just about to really smash me in the face, you know, hit me hard. And in my mind, I'd already been hit. And I was just wondering how bad it was going to be. Um, And luckily, he was kind of wobbly on his legs, and he had to sit down before he could swing. (laughs) (laughs) Your luck. It's the only thing that saved me. So that kind of aggression, and this is a a lovely man. He would certainly not do that normally, but he was one of those people that became very aggressive with Alzheimer's. So, okay, I'm going to probably massacre these names. I am not a pharmacist for anyone who's listening. So dextrom, oh, I was going to, I practice this, dextromethamphetamine. 
Forfen, who knows how to say this. Anyway, a cough suppressant. There's a cough suppressant found in over-the-counter cough medicines. And there's quinidine, which is used to control heart rhythm disorders. Those don't sound like two things that go together at all. So in combination, they've been used to treat neurological disorders that involve involuntary movement of like facial muscles, right? Well, somewhere along the line, I don't know how you jump from twisting or, or tweaking facial muscles to Alzheimer's, they took this combination of drugs, of this cough suppressant and this um, heart medicine, and they gave it to Alzheimer's patients. And they gave them, you know, they've got the placebo for one group, and they've got the real, the real drugs. So a double-blind study. Double-blind study. Um, and they ran it, and the people that took the combination, this, this combo drug, uh, their aggression dropped on a scale, a measurable scale, from 7.1 to 3.8. Significant. Which is a significant drop. And 55% of the people who were on the drugs had a 50% reduction in their agitation. So if you've got somebody like the gentleman I was talking about who is threatening to kill you, who is hitting, is striking, who is agitated all day long, cussing a blue streak, a 50% decrease in that behavior can save your life. And the good news is when it comes to that aggression and agitation – it does ease after a period of time when the Alzheimer's becomes worse. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, that's a stage that you may have to go through that does um, My dad change. went through that. He, was the, he and my mom married 65-plus years, loved each other, walked hand-in-hand, hand, never heard him raise his voice ever until uh, toward the end when he had Alzheimer's. He would uh, yell at her. He had never yelled at her, ever. And she understood it was the disease, which was fortunate. Well, that's – yeah, and because and when it first happens, you think, oh, my goodness, what, what I have do? I done? Right. What have I done? Right. Well, if you are somebody who is, is in the unfortunate position of, a, of an Alzheimer's person that mm. is very agitated, look up this article in the New York Times, Combination Drug May Ease the Agitation of Alzheimer's. Combination Drug May Ease the Agitation of Alzheimer's. Show it to your doctor. See if there's – you know, he's aware of this and can work with you. There are other medications as well. You should definitely, if you have somebody who's that agitated, that aggressive, that unhappy, you really do need a medication intervention along with maybe some behavioral triggers in the environment. There is help. It's good for them and good for you as the caregiver. Absolutely. It can certainly make your life a lot more livable. And, and, and you know, livable for both of you. You're right. both going to feel exactly. better. All right. So next week we're going to find out a little more about uh, vitamin D and healthy knees. Something I can use. We'll do that. And up next, we're going to be talking with uh, Brenda Avadian, who is a specialist by experience on caregiving. She is founder of the Caregiver's Voice, and we'll talk with her next, right here on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Those of us eligible for Medicare know it's difficult and confusing to navigate the maze of rules and regulations. Well, now there's good news. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed provide all the information Medicare-eligible people may need on Medicare and Medicare Advantage health plan options and a whole lot more. And there's no cost for the service. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed are your one-stop, go-to resource for everything you need to know about Medicare. Call 877-813-3134. 877-813-3134. I'll tell you what, their operators standing by, as they say on TV. The fact is, specialists are waiting for you at the Medicare Information Center in San Antonio. If you call now at 877-813-3134, and they can help you with open enrollment questions and all kinds of issues involved in Medicare. We're so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. As we suggested early on, Brenda Vadian is joining us, founder of the Caregiver's Voice. We're delighted to have her with us. She has been working in this field since 1996 when she started taking care of her dad who had Alzheimer's. She's become a national spokesperson on caregiving, has written nine books, count them, nine books. And she's got a lot of information that she's going to share with our Caregiver SOS On Air listeners, along with Carol Zerniel. Brenda, delighted to have you on board. My pleasure to join both of you. So what was it about caregiving uh, that really led to you becoming so involved in talking about it, writing about it, lecturing about it? I think it was when I began 20 years ago. There were very few family caregivers who would write about it, 
And what I was told, no one was speaking about it. And fellow caregivers in the support group encouraged me to write about it because I would come into the support group and tell them funny stories of how we were coping. I honestly had no clue, but just how we were coping. So they said, you really need to write about this. And, you know, I'd written four books before then at that time, and I said, nah, I said, I don't write about this kind of thing. And they said, no, 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 we really need you to write about this. And I said, well, who's going to buy the book? Oh, we will. I said, show me the money. They said, how much? I said, I don't know. So that's when I began scrambling, figuring out, you know, where we're going to go from this. And we pre-sold a lot of copies, uh, probably over 100 copies of a hardcover book before I even started writing. Now, what were you doing before you became a caregiver? You were you were a corporate, you know... I worked we- in, uh, I was a corporate consultant, and I went into corporations and helped with career development, like succession planning, so I would sit down and meet with the executives and determine who would succeed them as they rose up and create development programs. And I also was involved a little bit in proposal development and would work with executives in their speaking skills and coach them in their speaking. So these were the kind of things I did, which was mostly with corporations, before my father was diagnosed with dementia. And we didn't have any local support in Wisconsin where he had been living for 45 years. So my husband and I, over a moment of weakness, um, said, why don't we just move him out here and and care for him? And so we moved him across country to California uh, to care for him. Was it something he wanted, do you think? Um, We told him... (laughs) You asked that so point blank. (laughs) So it makes me feel like a little kid who's being asked this question. He, uh, we told him, why don't you visit us? And I bought a one-way plane ticket for that visit. And by that time, dementia had taken hold. I would say he was just before middle stage dementia, just, you know, somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, when he, when we got there, when we got to our home, he said, I want to go back. You know, I have to go home. It's late. And uh, the following morning, we prepared him a breakfast and conversed with him, and he never mentioned going home after that. So we knew that the dementia had really affected his cognition to enough of a degree where he wasn't adamant about going home. Either that or you fixed a really good breakfast. (laughs) I think it was that. Actually, uh, with him staying with us, we ate better because my husband and I have no children, and we were always on the go, go, go. Rush, 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 one thing to the other, travel, eat one meal a day. We had three cats at the time, and you know how cats are. They're on autopilot. If you put food down, clean your litter box, they're okay. Well, you can't do that with an adult. You can't do that with an 86-year-old father who is showing signs of dementia and does not really know where he is. So you, I, I had the privilege of hearing you speak in Corpus Christi recently at the face-to-face conference, and you talked about the roller coaster, roller coaster ride of caregiving. It is. So when I picture you, you brought him home, and you're at the top of that first big hill on the roller coaster, and then after breakfast sometime, you took that first <laughs> big dip. It was a huge. We it must have been a negative lifestyle change. That night, I brought him home at eleven thirty. Um, you know, it was just not a good ride then because he did want to go home. And it took us an hour and a half to persuade him just to spend the night. And that first thing in the morning, we would eat and then take him back. And once we promised him that, he was okay. Did, um, you, did he fly out alone or did one of you go out and get him? Oh, no, no. I was with him for two weeks uh, trying to figure, you know, trying right. to get the fares in order before. Sure. That's a big uh, step for the two of you to take. I mean, you were living the carefree life. No, not a carefree life. Trust me, we were working. I mean, truly, we just our sketch, our work schedules were crazy. So it was just uh, moving that work schedule over to caregiving. So it wasn't it wasn't two uh, adults without children living that flexible style of living that we might think. We were already busy. (laughs) And then busier with him. Yeah, because it is such a commitment to care for a person 
who, you know, and he's completely unaware of where he is. I mean, and, and with dementia, when you're dealing with dementia, and later he was diagnosed with, at that time, they called it probable Alzheimer's. And, and even when you read research today, you hear about, we can't really diagnose it definitely with Alzheimer's until autopsy. But I, I disagree in the sense that we've gotten so good at looking at the symptoms and the behaviors and everything that goes along with it. I think we're we're much better at being able to tell if it's Alzheimer's, Lewy body dementia, vascular dementia, and any of the other lesser causes of dementia. Well, you talked in your speech, you talked a little bit about some of the problem behaviors that you had to deal with. What what were some of the things that you faced? You know, one minute you're you're dealing with just the work-related stuff, and now you're dealing with unusual behaviors. And, and I think that's an important thing, Carol. And in fact, I want to just kind of tie that into my first tip for caregivers, and that is learn as much as you can about the disease or illness so you know what to expect. Because for us, uh, what happened is he began to become paranoid, and it's like they're taking my things. And as we know, with people with dementia or Alzheimer's, what will happen is they'll take something and place it somewhere and forget. And their reaction is, well, I didn't put it there, you know, or they don't even remember where if they, you know, that they put it there. So they'll say, uh, they're taking my thing. So we dealt with the paranoia. Uh, we dealt with um, him trying, him wandering because he couldn't tell the difference between day or night. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, we'd hear this noise, and he would be trying to get out of the home. And the funny little thing was that the home that we lived in at the time with him was one of those track-style homes that they uh, build very quickly, you know, in, in good times when development is going. And what they did is they installed our patio door upside down and backward. That was a blessing, as it turns out. Yeah, because we put the bar outside so he <laughs> couldn't open it at night. Right. Excellent. So we kept <laughs> the people inside instead of... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Instead of the people outside out. Yeah, that could that actually could be a good renovation tip for other people with sliding glass doors. <laughs> Except yeah, the, it's a fire hazard, though. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So you have those kind of things. But, you know, it's, it's like, again, we don't have children, but I hear about parents talking about being tethered constantly to their children. And that's how we were with him, constantly tethered to what is he doing, what are the sounds he's making at night. Is it going in the refrigerator to get something or... Is he in the breezeway in the um, trying to get out into the garage or somewhere else? Well, you talked about you, you already gave us one tip for caregivers. So do you have a second tip for caregivers? <laughs> yes, I, I have. Uh, I'd like to actually give uh, three tips. And, and the second tip is to take a respite. Uh, what happens is professionals, and Carol, you're an RN, are you not? A gerontologist. Gerontologist. Okay, so even more professional in this area, and and people like you, Carol, will say to caregivers, family caregivers, you need to take a respite. And of course, we look at people like you, Carol, and we say, how can we find time to take a respite? This caregiving is consuming. It takes so much time. And so I built a concept called a five-minute respite, because we can all take a five-minute respite. We can walk away. You need to use the bathroom. It only takes five minutes. So I say take a five-minute respite. Uh, It's better if you take longer ones, but start with a five-minute one so that you have enough energy to find the joy in caregiving. Otherwise, you run the risk of getting caregiver dementia. And uh, this is a real concept, even though it's not a formal medical diagnosis. What do you mean by that? Uh, Caregiver dementia, it's exactly the same as dementia for others, which is this sense of disorientation, forgetfulness, and maybe even some hallucinations. But for caregivers, because we are without sleep, we are so exhausted, uh, we're constantly on the go, 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 trying to think of multiple things at one time. And at that level, we're just so high-strung operating that we start experiencing that forgetfulness, that disorientation, the hallucinations. And my husband and I both went through that. Well, you know, it's, it's a reversible form of dementia in that once you're finished caregiving or take enough respite, you get back to normal. But it does take its toll, and that's why we hear that 
so many caregivers are deal with depression. Well, and I think you mentioned that um, with taking the respite, that sometimes it takes as much time to plan respite as it does to more, take the respite. More so, Carol. You know, and, and that's I think that's the struggle when professionals say you really need to take a respite. It's not, initially, I, I mean, think for this, for example, we uh, used adult daycare services for my father. And it took me three times as long just to kind of set that up, go there, check it out, take my father there, see how he would react to it, try to couch it in a way that he would accept it. And for him, it was a job. He was helping to pay his way while staying with us. So it was his job. He would go there to work and help support, you know, the household expenses. All right, now stick with us just a minute. We're going to come right back to you. We're going to... uh drop you into the Maxwell Smart Cone of Silence, and after the news, we will come right back to Brenda Avedia. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Carol Zernio, we're talking about the founder of The Caregiver's Voice, recently down in Corpus Christi, gave a talk to a, a group of folks on uh, caregiving at the Face-to-Face Caregiver Festival. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Welcome back. Delighted to have you with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. By the way, podcasts of our shows are available. Uh, Simply go to caregiversos.org, and you can find the podcast for each and every one of our shows. If you're listening to us on Sunday afternoon, about a week after you hear the show on the air, the podcast will be available. And we hope that you have a chance not only to listen to the podcast, if there's some more information you want, uh, but you can share it with neighbors and friends and those dealing with similar kinds of issues. Brenda Vadian is with us, founder of The Caregiver Voice. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. So, Brenda, you were, had given us two excellent tips, uh, caregiving tips. One was find out as much as you can about the disease that you're dealing with. And the second one was take a respite, uh, even, right. even you, difficult as that might services. be. Say that I, again? I said use your community services. We, we, in our case, we were using adult daycare services, and, and he thrived there. It was just wonderful, and we did it every day. Uh, so he had stimulation with other people, and then we had him in the evening. So it was, it's a wonderful option, or in-home care services, any of these options that are available, or mix it up. You don't have to do one or the other. You can do a combination of them, but just anything that provides the caregiver respite so that the caregiver can be re-energized in in order to continue to provide care. Otherwise, if we push it and push it and push it, then, and I've seen this in the 20 years I've been in this field, that the caregivers predecease their loved ones. It does happen, yes. And what, so what's the purpose there? You know, what have we accomplished if we finish our job and die before we're really finished with our job? And that's the critical thing where I think taking even a five-minute rest, but just stepping away, taking a breath, doing something, if you're in a stressful situation, just step away, go go outside, take a deep breath, or punch a pillow, or scream inside of a pillow, or whatever your situation is, just do something to burn off that energy and change the focus before you come back in. Now, you were able, during the time you were caring for your dad, providing those caregiver services, uh, you had a uh, successful consulting job, corporate business. Were you able to keep that going, too? No. No. uh, When you're caregiving, it just really, um, you know, back then, also, we didn't have as many options. We had, uh, as, as Carol mentioned, being a geriatrician, you have the specialties, but we it, they just weren't we're so much more aware of all of this today than we are than we were then. Uh, the quality and the options that we have available are so much more. So it, it became a choice of, okay, we made this commitment to take care of my dad. Uh, I could not continue the level of consulting that I did. And what it did though, is it morphed into, 
the caregiving side of it, which is after the release of the memoir, Where's My Shoes? My Father's Walk Through Alzheimer's, which we're looking at putting out an ebook or maybe reframing it completely, um, that once that came out, I was traveling once more, uh, speaking about the experience. Um, and you were donating uh, what you were taking in uh, I was, to dementia and caregiver organizations. I was. We donated quite a bit of money. Uh, in fact, everything that came in was given away because the economy was good, and I thought, oh, when I finish this, I can always earn a living. And, of course, we all know what happened shortly after the mid-2000s in 2006, the second half of 2006, seven. And eight and nine, uh, we all suffered great losses. So that wasn't, in hindsight, such a smart idea because now I'm a 50-something somebody trying to... Save for retirement. Uh, yeah. Which, which, is, which is, you know, a lot of caregivers, you know, are, are faced with similar situations. Well, before we talk a, a bit more about the caregiver's voice and your book, tell us the third tip that you have for the caregivers. Actually, this is the most important tip I find that really is pivotal for caregivers, and I call it Avadian's diamond rule or diamond tip for caregivers. And it takes, it's a diamond tip because it takes the golden rule a step further, and here is what it is. Care for your loved one the way you would want to be cared for. That's the golden rule. And here's the diamond tip. If you were living with the same disease or illness. So one more time, care for your loved one the way you would want to be cared for if you were living with the same disease or illness. And that's the critical thing, that if, because oftentimes people say, well, gee, you know, if I... We're in that situation. If I were in that situation, oh, I just just leave me alone and let me die. You know, I would never want to live that way. But if you do tip one, where you really get to understand the nature of the disease, you'd never say that because the nature of the disease is, you know, at some point in my father's time in our home, he said, you know, I'm not of much use. I'd like to die. Can you help me die? And, uh, you know, this is that self-awareness people go through. But once he went through that and the dementia declined further and the Alzheimer's took more of his brain cells, he became a happy man. Now, not everybody is happy, but this is how he became. He was happy. And I used to tell my husband, I said, can you imagine if we approached him and said, do you want us to help you die? He would probably run away and start screaming, going, you crazy people. So he became happy. And so that's why I say, how, with what I know about the disease, how would I want to be cared for if I were living with the same fears and insecurities of losing my capacity, of losing my independence? How would I want to be cared for? And that's what we're really trying to push for with more knowledge. Uh, this September, this past September was World Alzheimer's Month. And then in November uh, in the U.S., we have the National Family Caregivers Month and National Alzheimer's Awareness Month. So the more aware we become, the less we hear experiences where people are saying, uh, you know, people with Alzheimer's are walking zombies, you know, they're not really alive. And this is what I used to hear in the 90s. Today I don't hear this more because people are becoming more sensitive and more compassionate. And people with Alzheimer's and dementia are speaking for themselves. And I think that's the power in all this. In fact, the late Dr. Richard Taylor was based in Houston. Um, he used to speak out, and uh, he was a psychologist, and he used to speak about his experience with Alzheimer's. And when you hear the voice of people with dementia, that's powerful. Now, one of the things I know you advocate for is a continuum of care uh, for folks with Alzheimer's uh, to assist caregivers. What does yes. that mean? Uh, for me, what it means is start out if you're taking care of your loved one at home or uh, in your home or in their home, take advantage of in-home care services. 
call somebody to just come in. Again, it doesn't have to be every day, 24 hours a day, but just maybe a half day just to break things up. Uh, the other continuum of care is the adult day services, support groups. Take advantage of support groups so you feel that you have somebody at your back, somebody who understands, somebody who speaks your same language, where many times caregivers feel so alone and disenfranchised from the rest of the cat family members who don't know how to help or won't help. Um, take advantage of residential care. Sometimes to take a respite, maybe for an extended weekend, you might choose to place your loved one in extended care or in, in residential care or assisted living. Or so, if your loved one really needs a lot of assistance in skilled nursing, then skilled nursing care. And then, of course, hospice. And along that continuum, Find yourself a certified elder law attorney to help advise you on benefits that you might be eligible for. People say that the cost of elder law attorneys are too expensive, but I always say, you know, these folks are keeping up with the laws and the benefits, and, and sometimes they end up giving you information that can save you more money than you would have paid for meeting with them. So when I listen to the to the list that you just gave of all the services and who you need along the way, you know, I'm thinking this is someone who has definitely walked this walk. You know, all of that information you just gave out, you didn't come by that easily. No, and it's people like you and your role as geriatric care professionals who can provide this kind of advice to families. And so families might look at you and say, I don't want to hire you because your hourly rate is more than I can afford, but yet you, like an elder law attorney, have that knowledge, have the connections that a family member would have to go through on their own. And that's, that's the challenge, is uh, when you hire professionals to help you, they shortcut the journey and give you energy to do the things that you really want to be doing. And through caregiversos.org, you can get all kinds of information online at no cost. Absolutely. So how long did you care for your father? Uh, he lived with, for, since, uh, let me see, we, we brought him out to California in 96, and he passed in 2001. So five years. Yeah. And we figured had he lived in Milwaukee, he would have died likely within a period of a year because... Again, uh, he would take a space heater, put it on, under a blanket to heat up his bed. You know, it's just he was walking out. He was uh, in the winter. He'd forget his keys. Um, so he'd get locked out. And when you have an elder like that, and, the, again, people are not aware of the sensitivity. In fact, when we placed him in a skilled nursing place, he got out 12 hours later and I called the police, and they said, we can't even search for him until 24 hours later when you do a missing person. So I said, he, he, the police, uh, the sheriffs out here said, we can only look for children. I said, but uh, he's a person with dementia, and his mind is like a child in terms of his comprehension. And they said, no, we can't. Well, today, again, the difference between yesterday and today, today, they're on top of it. They right. understand do a silver alert. I see them all the time on the reader boards on the highway here. Right. I always yeah. check the model of the car and make sure it's not mine. Yeah. <laughs> so where can, uh, we're running out of time, where can people find you or find out information about your book? Well, I think the best place is to come to the website, uh, thecaregiversvoice.com, thecaregiversvoice.com. And they can find us then on social media, on Facebook, Google+, Plus, uh, you know, Pinterest, LinkedIn, Perfect. YouTube, all of that. Got to stop you right there. Brenda Vadia, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we look forward to doing it again. My pleasure, and thank you both. You take care. Bye-bye. Brenda Vadia, who is the founder of The Caregiver's Voice, and you heard the website. You can check her out there. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Up next on Caregiver SOS On Air, take 10, right here on 9.30 a.m., The Answer.
Those of us eligible for Medicare know it's difficult and confusing to navigate the maze of rules and regulations. Well, now there's good news. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed provide all the information Medicare-eligible people may need on Medicare and Medicare Advantage health plan options and a whole lot more. And there's no cost for the service. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed are your one-stop, go-to resource for everything you need to know about Medicare. Call 877-813-3134. 877-813-3134. I'll tell you what, their operators standing by as they say on TV. The fact is specialists are waiting for you at the Medicare Information Center in San Antonio. If you call now at 877-813-3134, 817 817- 877-813-3134-877-813-3134 and they can help you with open enrollment questions and all kinds of issues involved in Medicare. Thank you very much for sticking with us for Take 10. Each of our Caregiver SOS programs ends with Take 10. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel continues with us, our co-host. And Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us, nationally known expert on caregiving and addictions. And we're delighted to have Dr. Heisman with us, too. So here's the topic for both of you, Carol and Jamie. Uh, You are a caregiver. You have a care recipient. Maybe it's your spouse, your husband, your wife, who is incredibly needy, who has serious problems, very difficult, very complicated Tough to manage, but you don't want to put them in a home. You want to keep them right there with you. What do you do and where do you get the help to make that happen, Jamie? Well, first and foremost, I I think this is a clinical question. I'm not sure any one of us, I know this is very difficult, we really have tried and true belief systems about giving our loved one, let's say, um, uh, another place to live rather than our own house. I, I think that first, clinically, you do have to consult with your your neurologist or your primary care doctor, whoever the physician is of your loved one, for number one, to see if actually living at home is the best place for them. I'm, to really open your mind up to the professional's opinion, if this is just your guilt, your shame, uh, a credo, ideology, or if your loved one will really benefit. That's got to be the first thing, Ron. Well, and I agree with that. Uh, you know, the the other thing when trying to keep somebody at home is is looking at, you know, if you're a financial person, there is a mistaken belief that it's always less expensive at home. People get sticker shock from assisted living and nursing homes, and they think, oh, it has to be cheaper at home when actually care 24-7 in the home is m- maybe more expensive than even a nursing home. You know, kudos to that. I'm going through that with in-laws right now, and they thought, obviously, going to a skilled facility where I, I certainly believe um, their mother d- needs to be, uh, was important to come to, to the house. And you're right, Carol, they're spending twice as much. And, Ron, to the question you said before, too, uh, if we're going to keep our loved one at home, what what's really going on here? I mean, if our loved one is no longer connected to other people or to a social program that can really correspond to their chronic or terminal illness, I mean, are we not fostering isolation and loneliness and worsening confusion and, and maybe memory loss? So there's, there's great questions here to ask oneself before we make this cavalier decision. In other words, are you doing it for them or are you doing it for you? You bet. You bet. I think that's really the crux of it. You usually have a very succinct way, Ron, of putting it. That's the, that's the point. Uh, who are we doing this for? I mean, even with Alzheimer's and, you know, latter-stage Alzheimer patients, um, if we're keeping them at home and setting them up, if you will, for, to, for low self-esteem because they can't really accomplish a whole lot in a home, let's say, that's not ready for them. Let's say it's not built properly. There's a lot of places to slip and fall. Uh, what ways to get confused? Are we not maybe diminishing their self-esteem by not providing the proper social environment? Well, uh, you know, the, one of the other things that we have to take into consideration is is the safety of the individual. So, right. if we have somebody who's very frail, late stage cancer, very confused, late stage Alzheimer's, um, what about you know, in a facility they have an evacuation plan? If there's an emergency in the home. Um, what is the ability of that loved one to be able to get out of harm's way? 
it, how many people live in the home? Is somebody going to be able, if you're incapacitated, you're the primary caregiver, what is, what's the likelihood that that person is going to be okay in a family emergency? Look what happened in an apartment fire here in San Antonio, a senior residence where they weren't Alzheimer's patients, but several of the people died because they couldn't figure out how to get out. That's right. They, it, they didn't believe the warning system, and they were perfectly capable, but they didn't believe it was a real fire drill. Right. Absolutely, and I worked uh, pretty extensively years back with the Red Cross, and they, they, they are the resource I, I first would go to. Obviously, I, again, always, always, eldercare.gov and the Area Agency on Aging will be able to send you to the proper place. But the Red Cross has some pretty good disaster preparedness plans you know, in, in, in place. They have come up against this. But even them, and to, to Carol's point, they haven't covered all the bases. Uh, we had a terrible hurricane here, and... and the, the shelters were not prepared in any way to deal with Alzheimer uh, patients. And so, really, a caregiver of an Alzheimer patient, a mom, a person I, I do know, ended up taking care of five or six people with memory disorders, and, and her mom kind of wandered the entire shelter. But to that point, again, that point, is this the right place where mom or dad is? And I think immediately now, even before somebody gets sick, you need to talk to your parents about what they actually want and what they see is part of their future. Well, and, and you mentioned safety, so now let's talk about routine safety. Let's talk about area rugs and extension cords and stairs. steps, steps, stairs, you know, different levels um, in the home, the bathroom and grab bars. Have you really equipped that home to make that person safe and successful in their activities of daily living. Um, you know, fortunately, the design world is coming to the rescue of those of us who don't want ugly things in our house, even though all of us have ugly things in our house, I suspect. Uh, but, you know, you can, the grab bars, the railings in the hallways, you can do that, and, and it's okay. You know, well, it's not... The numbers are huge and staggering of how many people really want to stay at a home. So to your point, I mean, to be livable and how to optimize that livability is critical. I think we're coming a long way, Carol, and I think you would agree, and, and Ron, I'm sure you're aware of it, of caregiving technologies that help people care for older adults at home. I, I do believe we still have a long ways to go around that, and sometimes that's costly. But no doubt we should be exploring that. Tomorrow I'm doing a presentation in Miami with the FCC. Uh, the government's coming down to talk about mm -hmm. caregiver technology. So more and more that's on the minds of the public. Well, and you bring up a good point because there are some some great technologies. You know, the, the simplest is that I've fallen and can't get up. Uh, emergency alert response. And I know of one family, they live in the same home. So mom's up, you know, mom is on the ground floor and... The caregiver is in the basement, but that person in the basement can't hear when mom falls. So mom still has to have an emergency alert response system on even when everybody's home because they've got good thick carpets and no one can hear when mom falls. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of our Caregiver SOS on-air program. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel, our co-host, and Dr. Jamie Heisman with us on our Caregiver SOS Take 10 Hotline. We're talking about the high-demand, high-maintenance individual who needs care, uh, who the caregiver wants to keep at home. And when you talk about those kinds of assists that are out there, Dr. Jamie, uh, the numbers of uh, uh, products and services are increasing. They are increasing. And, again, though, you have to really kind of do due diligence on them. Most of them, uh, I'm not indicting an industry, but most of them are great creative engineers from large companies who believe this is what's necessary for caregivers. So they, they come to the marketplace, if you will, telling caregivers and their, and their loved, and loved ones and carees that this works. Uh, I'm not so sure that's the best approach. I do think we should start where seniors are and, and create technology that offers independence and, and offers dignity. I think you find these answers in, out again in support groups or tried and proven senior groups like uh, Area Agency on Aging. When you go to Caregiver SOS, I'm sure talking to other seniors what works and what doesn't work is the best way to go around this. Well, and I think the last thing I would add about keeping someone at home is this adaptive equipment. We talked about grab bars briefly, but, you know, it's the hospital bed, it's the widened doorways. I mean, there are structural things that you have to have in your home 
uh, to make someone who's frail work, if you whether you're um, having to transfer them or whether they're in a wheelchair. Um, and then if you're dealing with someone with Alzheimer's, there may be, you know, those things that trigger bad behaviors or, or you know, too much clutter. My mother-in-law couldn't stand clutter. Uh, and so you have to adapt your environment to be what the person needs, right, Jamie? Absolutely. And I used to run psychiatric um, hospitals, if you will, and we always had, unfortunately, many, many years back what we call seclusion rooms because that was because the staff wasn't adept enough to handle the psychiatric patient. I believe this says that family members need to be educated so that a loved one feels secure. So it's so critical not just to do this on the blind, but make sure if you're taking care of a loved one at home, get the education you desperately need so you and your loved one feel safe. Yeah, I think Jamie and I are on the same page that this is a complicated decision. Right. It's not one you do from your gut. You know, I'm going to do this, you know, because I said I would. Um, it has to be a thoughtful, practical decision where you've looked at it from all angles. That said, marriage vow we need to strip out in sickness and in health. <laughs> well, you, you may, but I think that you go from the dignity side first. And I also think you go to the self-care. By the way, technologies also work for caregivers to take care of themselves. So make sure that you don't forget that when planning to keep a loved one at home. Time is up. Jamie, thank you. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We thank you so much for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Those of us eligible for Medicare know it's difficult and confusing to navigate the maze of rules and regulations. Well, now there's good news. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed provide all the information Medicare-eligible people may need on Medicare and Medicare Advantage health plan options and a whole lot more. And there's no cost for the service. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed are your one-stop, go-to resource for everything you need to know about Medicare. Call 877-813-3134. 877-813-3134. I'll tell you what, their operators standing by as they say on TV. The fact is specialists are waiting for you at the Medicare Information Center in San Antonio. If you call now at 877-813-3134-877-813-3134-877-813-3134 and they can help you with open enrollment questions and all kinds of issues involved in Medicare.